Good morning. Today's reading is from John 18, 12 to 27. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then, then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This is the reading of the word. You may be seated. All right, thanks, Sherry. That was a long passage, wasn't it? We usually reserve those for the middle school readers. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Uh, I am just, I don't know if I should be distressed or fascinated by the number of uh, Kansas City Chiefs logos I see out there. It's just, it's just really interesting to me. Anyway, a couple things before we get started. First of all, we're having baptisms today. We had three scheduled, but you know the kind of world we live in, things, plans get changed uh, last minute a lot um, because of COVID and stuff like that. And uh, so we still are going to have one baptism. We're excited about that. So we, please stick around afterward uh, for, the baptism, for the baptism, and um, it'll be a great time of celebration. But also, uh, Tyler James and I were speaking this morning, and um, if you came this morning... Uh, not prepared to be baptized, but the Holy Spirit works in you and, uh, during this service today, and, and uh, you begin to realize that maybe now is the time to be baptized. We'd, we'd also love to talk to you, and we can dunk you then. We've got towels. We don't have, it's just the way I put it, I know, yeah. But we don't have, we have towels. We don't have a change of clothes for you, but we do have towels. And so you can take the towel home with you if you want, but we'd love to be able to uh, baptize you today uh, after this service. We'll be right out on the patio. Uh, the other thing is I promised last week uh, we're going to have a financial update. We finally got our audited figures. And so here is uh, 2021 uh, year in review. Uh, you see the actual on the left, the budget on the right. Uh, our budget was $1,130,000 and our actual uh, giving this year was $1,246,000. Uh, our expenses were budgeted for a million ninety-five, and uh, even with the tithes and offerings uh, exceeding budget, uh, Stephanie was uh, kind of kept the lid on things, and we came in under budget on expenses, which is nice. So, million eighty-nine, and so our surplus is one hundred and fifty-six thousand dollars. Steve Wheeler, who leads our elders, is thinking that we might take uh, the surplus and invest it in Bitcoin so that we could get some <laughs> decent return. Um, I was kind of against that, but at any rate, uh, here is what we're looking at. By the way, we have a lot more detail on this, but uh, if, if you're interested, but um, 
I didn't think we'd want to go through it here on Sunday morning. But here's the budget for 2022. Uh, looking at a budget of a million two with expenses of a million one ninety five and I anticipate with a expected surplus of forty five hundred but I expect a question as to why uh, an increase of one hundred and six thousand in expenses over actual in twenty twenty one the reason is because primarily there are some other things, but the two big hits we 're taking this year is healthcare is going way up, and it just never seems, those increases never seem to abate. Uh, Jason and Neil, who work in, uh, at Redemption Central, are constantly on the lookout for the best possible uh, deals that we can get. And so, not only was there about a, a 20% increase in our healthcare, but also all of the employees had to take a little haircut too. The deductibles went up, and the Co-pays went up and all of that. So uh, it's tough out there when it comes to health care. I'm sure none of you have experienced any of that. Uh, and then um, we also are in a position now where uh, we need to start uh, funding Central a little bit more because, again, uh, the, 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 the cost of actually maintaining uh, properties and doing payroll and doing all of the things that they service with is actually going up. And so at 11.5% of our budget going to take care of those centralized things, it's still a deal because if we did that on our own, it would run about 20% of our budget. So we're paying 11.5% into them, but that's uh, more than the 10.4% we were paying last year. So that was kind of a big hit uh, as well. Anyway, we are expecting that we're going to have a surplus. Um, and just, uh, just so you know kind of the undulation of the last year, if you're interested, um, we had very good months the first six months of 2021, and then the next five were kind of touch and go, and then December was uh, actually considerably better than December last year, and so that's kind of how uh, the year went. And if you have any uh, further questions about that, you can always email me or email uh, one of the elders. We'd be glad to talk to you about that. All right, let's pray and get in today's passage, which is John chapter 18. Our gracious God, we, uh, we thank you for your word and its truth. And now as we unpack it and we read this narrative about uh, what Jesus is going through, his arrest and, and uh, the beginning of his trial, uh, I just pray that you'd open our hearts and our eyes to see your truth, to understand how we can discern your will and your wisdom out of this. And again, as always, God, I just pray that you'd move me out of the way and that your Holy Spirit would work in this room. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like I said, get out your Bibles. We'll be in John chapter 18. We, we have 27 verses to go through today, uh, not just the verses that Sherry uh, read. And we are coming off the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, where Jesus prays for the glory of the Father and for himself, and then he prays for his disciples who are with him, and then he prays for the church. He prays uh, for us. And in the next three weeks, I'll give you an idea what's happening in the next five or six weeks. In the next three weeks, we're going to do chapter 18. We're going to front load it with 27 verses up front. Uh, we're going to talk about the arrest of Jesus, uh, the denial of Peter. We're going to look at that today. And then we're going to look, uh, start looking at the trial of Jesus. I'm pretty excited about next week. You know how maybe once every two or three months we do that dueling pastor thing where we have two people up here talking about the service or talking about the, uh, the passage in the sermon? Uh, next week I'm going to be up here with Luke Simmons, who is the lead pastor of Redemption Gateway and who has also now stepped into a role of Redemption Central as well. So he is actually uh, helping to lead all of Redemption as well. I thought it would be fun uh, for you to get to know him a little bit better because of his position in Redemption Central, but also uh, Luke is a, just a, an excellent expositor and, and communicator. I think you'll really enjoy hearing from him on next week's passage as well. And then after those next three weeks, including this week, we get into chapter 19 where we find the trial is over, but now Pilate has to deal with the sentencing of Jesus. And we look at the reticence that he has to sentence Jesus to what uh, the Jewish religious professionals are asking him to do. So we look at the sentencing. 
And then after Pilate finally caves, against his better judgment, he caves in. We look at the crucifixion, and then we look at the burial of Jesus in chapter 19. That's kind of what's coming in the next five or six weeks. And like I said, the reading was verses 12 through 17, but the first 11 verses of chapter 18 are what lead us into the passage that we read today. And we'll end up spending probably half our time in these first 11 verses, which I'll read for you. Uh, and then the rest of our time will be in, in the verses that Sherry read. So looking at verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. It's interesting one of the things that was pointed out in the preaching collective is how often uh, John decides at this point to identify Judas as the one who betrayed Jesus. It's, it's like uh, he doesn't want the reader to forget that Judas <laughs> betrayed Jesus, so he constantly identifies him that way uh, from here on out. Uh, so Judas, having, a procu having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. He points at his disciples. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have, not, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup? that the Father has given me. And I'll just mention about Malchus now. John is the only one who identifies uh, Malchus by name. And there's all kinds of speculation about that, and I, and I spent a lot of time looking into it. Um, and it, I, I don't know that it matters to the story, but it is interesting, some of the supposition. One is that uh, Malchus and John, the writer of the gospel, actually knew each other pretty well. And if you, if you also kind of know, there's, there just seems to be a little bit of tension between Peter and, and John. And so maybe, I don't know, some people say this is kind of John's way of getting back at Peter. But by the time John wrote this, Peter was already dead. So I don't know if that makes any sense. Some people think that John was actually related somehow to Malchus, and that's why he knew him. There's also speculation, which I think is possible, that uh, since this was written after both Malchus and Peter had died, the other gospel writers didn't mention uh, uh, Malchus by name because they were trying to protect Peter in some way. So I, I don't know. Anyway, if you're wondering about that little, that little detail, that's that rabbit trail for us. No more rabbit trails today. So here we go. Remember, Jesus knows what's coming next as we enter into chapter 18. And, and, and I just want us to consider how he prepared for the most challenging 24 hours of his life. He knows this is coming, and what he did in preparation for what was coming was he spent time with his community, and he spent time in prayer. I think that's significant to reflect on. But then he boldly proceeds, and, and, and he doesn't just boldly proceed with this. He leads out in this. If his disciples had their way, they would have restrained him from going. But he leads out. He says, this is my mission. This is my purpose. And I want to reread 3 through 6, because in these verses, I think we see sort of the core of what's really going on here. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. It says there, 
in the ESV, it's translated a band of soldiers. So Judas came with the, the chief priests and the scribes, the, the professional religious people, the perps, but also a band of soldiers. These are Roman soldiers. Now this may be hard to believe, and it could be considered a bit of overkill, not by the author, but by what the chief priests and the, and the, and the professional religious people wanted to do. But they were so nervous, the perps were so nervous about Jesus, this word translated band, or in other translations, it's a cohort of soldiers, literally meant up to hundreds of men, maybe even 600. A normal cohort was 600 soldiers. So there's speculation that they may have brought 600. Now, Maybe it's not 600, but even if they brought 100, I mean, think about that. They have all of these Jewish professional, uh, religious professionals, and then you have maybe 100 Roman soldiers. I mean, this Jesus must be a really scary guy for them to bring so much. And we need to look at verse 6 in, in order to understand uh, everything that happened in the preceding three verses. These guys came out expecting that they were either going to get a fight or flight from Jesus. They were expecting one or the other. They didn't expect Jesus to respond the way he did. He's either going to fight or flight. And so they had weapons to fight and they had lanterns in order to see in the dark in case there was a chase and or a search for Jesus. Jesus, however, upon their approach, responds to them mildly and almost casually. He's not going to fight and he's not going to run. He's prepared for his mission, no matter how difficult that mission is. That's how Jesus responds in his humanity. That's his humanity response. Remember, he's a human being also at this time with all of the same fears and temptations and trepidations. That's how he responded in his humanity. And yet, and yet his divinity could not be suppressed. The power of God's mere presence was no match for the weapons, the torches, the overwhelming numbers, and the betrayal of Judas. Jesus is willing to go because he knows he must. That's the plan. There's no altering the plan. Jesus knows that. And we also remember how many times in the past three years of his ministry in the Gospels, how many times he had easily slipped away from them in the past when they had come for him. And he could have done it again. He knew they were coming. This time, however, he stays because we've been told now is his time. The number of times in the gospel he said, it's not my time, it's not my hour. Now is his time. But this demonstration of divine power, pushing them back with his response, reminds us of two critically important things. Number one, the schemes of humans are no match for the glory of God. And number two, Jesus had all power to put a stop to this, and yet he, God in the flesh, he willingly lays down for this mission, this purpose, for this glory of saving his people, for the glory of saving you and me. So don't just run past verse 6 and think that maybe John got carried away with hyperbole in his, in his description. This verse clearly depicts the power of the glory of God, the literal weightiness of the glory of God. And then in verses 7 and 8, it continues to de depict Jesus' mild and casual response. And verse 8 even sounds sort of familiar to a parent who might be in the face of grave danger from a bad person saying something like, let my kids go, just take me. And while it is true that Jesus said this in order to fulfill what he had said during his prayer just a, just a little bit earlier in John 17, 12, there's more than that happening here. So two things I want to point out here. First of all, this is actually a picture of the true, pure gospel. Jesus does it all. We merely receive Jesus' grace. We don't do anything. We respond when we come to Jesus, for sure. And we're called, and we're empowered, and we're strengthened, and we're filled with the Holy Spirit. But when we come for salvation, we've done nothing. 
Our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, used to say all the time, the only thing we bring to the table of salvation is our sin. That's it. Jesus has done everything else for us. And because that's true, we can also never lose our salvation. If we did nothing to gain it, if it was all the work of Jesus, what is there that we can do to, quote, lose our salvation? So he says to the Father, in, in a sense, he also says to the Father, when we sin, if we're saved, he says to the Father, let us go. I'm standing in their place. I went to the cross. That's an amazing thing. And I, I bring this up because there's teaching out there in the church that says that even after your heart has been converted and you have become a follower of Jesus, you can still somehow lose your salvation. Some grievous sin, a misplaced affection, or something called apostasy, which I still don't understand. I think it's, I think it's a grievous sin or a misplaced affection. The, scripture's really clear. clear. The, the, there's, there's one sin. There's one sin that can't be covered, and that's unbelief in Jesus. That's the one. That's the one that grieves the Holy Spirit. That's the one. There is no other sin that Jesus was on the cross, and he said, I'm up here for 90% of the sins. Anybody interested in the list of the ones that I'm not up here for? There is no list. Well, actually, that list is that just that one, but it's unbelief. That's the only way to grieve the Holy Spirit. Throughout the New Testament and specifically in the gospel narratives and Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 and in Romans chapter 8, we are reminded that nothing can cause us to lose our salvation. God will never leave us or forsake us. Jesus will never lose one of his own. So remember, for those who are in Christ, it is with boldness that we come to his throne of grace, even when we've sinned grievously. And that seems to be the hardest time for us to come to his throne of grace, is when we've sinned grievously, and that old guilt starts to kick in. And that's just Satan telling you, you're not worthy, you're not worthy, don't go to the throne. And that's when we need to bust through that temptation that Satan is giving us to just withdraw. We need to bust through that. And we need to proclaim that Jesus has done this for us, and that we are in Christ. So second of all, this is also a picture of the simple but profound truth of Jesus' covenant with us. It's not a contract we have with Jesus. It's a covenant that Jesus has with us. And here it is. Although we may not always understand it or appreciate it, Jesus at all times is either protecting us or providing for us. And I say, although we may not always understand it or appreciate it, I say that because I know from experience and I know from talking to many of you that, that there have been times when, you know, I'm not sure that he's really providing for me. I look at my circumstances and, and I'm like, I thought you were supposed to be providing for me. This doesn't feel very much like providing. But then later on, sometimes Weeks or months or even years later, I look back and I realize, actually, he was protecting me from something during that time. And then there are times when I feel like he's not protecting me from something. And, and then later on, I find out that really in the midst of what I thought was a lack of protection, he was actually providing something for me. And maybe it was he was providing something for me that I didn't necessarily want, you know. I... I made the mistake of praying for patience. And then I tore my rotator cuff. <laughs> so I'm going to learn about patience. I'm going to have surgery in, in March. I'm going to learn about patience. Anybody ever been in one of those immobilizers? I get depressed just thinking about it, I'll tell you. So by the way, don't pray for patience. He'll come and get you, all right? Anyway, but he's, he, he's actually, in that moment, providing something for me which I need. Because if you know me, I'm not exactly a patient person. Maybe I'm one of those people that needs to drive in the right lane only whenever I'm on the freeway. That's how you can learn patience, right? So what happens next? Pretty famous incident, actually, 
in verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. You know, Peter going to be Peter. He's a big, tough, loyal, ever-ready-to-fight guy whose status and power meal ticket is being threatened. Understand that Peter still has this idea that his status and power is rooted in his connection, his relationship, um, his discipleship with, with Jesus. And so it just, here's what happens. Peter's old muscle memory and his emotive memory both kick into gear. Now, I think you and I both know how hard it is, even in the gospel, to purge those old instincts, right? To purge that muscle memory, to purge that emotive memory that we have. And I'm not making excuses for Peter. I'm merely pointing out that Peter's just like us. Or we're just like him, either way. Even Peter, the great disciple of Jesus, needed to work through the process of sanctification. Peter was devoted, but impetuous. Peter was bold, but impulsive. Peter was a great asset, but he also had some liabilities. But there's one other thing this points out. Peter is just like us in that he doesn't want there to be any suffering, hardship, or difficulties in the manifestation of his life. And so he's willing, like so many of us, to do something gravely wrong if he thinks it'll help him avoid hardship. I know I'm willing to consider that or do that, do something wrong if I think it'll help me avoid something unpleasant. And then verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath, shall I not drink from the cup the Father has given me? What does it mean to drink the cup? The cup is a reference to the cup of God's wrath that he has for sin. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, he's nailed to the cross, he's crucified. He's the perfect and holy sacrifice, the one and only ever perfect lamb who goes to the cross for the sacrifice of sin. So in a sense... Metaphorically, he drinks this cup of wrath that the Father has for him for all sin so that you and I never have to experience that wrath of God for our sin. That's the great exchange. That's the great substitutionary, sacrificial atonement. And, and there's a point, we don't see it in John's gospel, that there's a point, though, in, in, in the, during the crucifixion, where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time he ever refers to the Father as God instead of Father. And he says, why have you forsaken me? And the reason is because in that moment, the Father, Jesus had become our sin. He was drinking the cup of wrath. He had become our sin. And the Holy Father could not look on his son at that moment. And Jesus felt what we will never have to feel if we're in Christ, and that is God turning his back on us. Jesus felt that for us. That's what it means to drink the cup. It's the death, the wrath, and the judgment done to him for sin. And the question of whether or not Jesus is going to go through uh, with his call was a done deal in Jesus' mind. Jesus had said repeatedly throughout his three-year ministry, I am doing my Father's work and my will is submitted to the Father. One of the greatest disciplines you and I will ever engage in is the daily challenge of submitting our will to God's. Psychologist Henry Cloud, some of you have heard me talk about this. He makes the case that uh, this one thing is the difference between wise people and foolish people. He talks about how 5 to 7% of the population is wise. And then he defines a wise person as somebody who says, I'm going to seek after the will and wisdom of God, and then I'm going to submit my will and my wisdom to God's. That's the wise person. And then he says more than 90% of people are the foolish people. They're the ones who say, I want everyone else to submit to my will. That's foolishness. And that's a problem. 
And so Jesus, again, gives us not only his life as a sacrifice for us, but also he gives us an example to follow. So what happens? Now, um, we're going to work through the rest of this a little bit out of order so that we can talk about Jesus' hearing before Annas all in one place, and then we'll talk about the denial of Peter all together after that next, okay? rather than jumping back and forth. So, verses 12 through 14 and 19 through 24. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and around the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now in verse 14, we get one of the main reasons that Jesus was executed. In a word, he was executed for expedience. Expedience. So this is a serious question. I've been posing questions to ask in application throughout. Here's another one. How many of us are willing to give up wisdom, truth, honor, and integrity for expedience, or convenience, or preference, or ease? And, and we begin to see this somewhat, in Jesus' mind anyway, a somewhat humorous backstory of sorts. He begins to bring this up, and we see it in the other Gospels too. Jesus is essentially saying, why are you arresting me at night under the cover of darkness? What is it that you're trying to hide by doing it this way? I have nothing to hide. I'm easily accessible. I've been teaching in the temple. And why do you act like you know nothing of my message and teaching? I haven't hidden anything from anyone. You've heard me. The people that you talk about and have talked to have heard me. And not only that, we're Facebook friends. You follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Why are you playing these games? You know what I'm about. What is the deal? What are you doing? Well, why do you think? It's expedience. They know they're wrong. This is a cover-up. You all think Watergate was the first cover-up in history? I mean, Nixon had nothing on these guys. That's just for me and the, and the people who are over 60, OK? <laughs> so interestingly, when the officer strikes Jesus, that's also actually an indication as well that they all knew that what they were doing was wrong in a cover-up. Why is that? Because what the officer did was illegal. Jesus had been accused but not convicted. And under Roman law at the time, you had the right to a defense and the right to be treated with care until you had been convicted. And this officer and his actions are a symptom of the highly emotional and illegitimate nature of what they were all trying to do to Jesus, driven by the professional religious people. There's yet another indication that they all knew that this was wrong in a cover-up, and it comes from Annas himself. Jesus had every right to call witnesses, and Annas was bound by legal procedure to call the witnesses that Jesus was asking for, but he didn't. And the reason he didn't, likely, is because he knew the witnesses would vindicate Jesus. And this hearing, this trial, these accusations, the problem is they're not rooted in facts and evidence. It's all bogus. But it had to happen because it also fulfills the prophetic scriptures that are more than 500 years old, that this is what would happen to the Messiah. And now we get to Peter, verses 15 through 18 and 25 through 27. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, this would be John, the person writing the gospel here, uh, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Peter said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. 
and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And Peter denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Like I said, the other disciple is John, probably John. John's always a little bit obscure when referencing him, himself in the narrative of, of the gospel and of Jesus' ministry. He also calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved. So in verse 17, this is the beginning of Jesus' prophecy regarding Peter and his denials coming true. It's the beginning of them coming true. It's the first denial. Now, Jesus told Peter about this. Couldn't Peter see this coming? You would think so. But also consider, consider Peter's emotional state at this point. Peter tried to stand up for Jesus. He thought he was doing the right thing by standing up to Jesus, pulling his sword. But Jesus rebukes him. He was ready to fight. Jesus told him to stand down. So he's probably processing all of that. I'm just imagining, so he's not thinking too clearly. And then in verses 25 and 27, they're the conclusion of Jesus' prophecy regarding Peter's denial. Peter denies Jesus a second and third time. A couple things there. First of all, scholars say, of course, that some time had passed between the first denial and the last two. This would have given Peter some time to compose himself and to think through the situation. So again, we see the contradiction of Peter. The contradiction of Peter is that Peter is both strong and weak. Both strong and weak. And again, we see that Peter is just like us, or we're just like Peter. All of us have our strengths, but all of us are weak in some ways. And we often don't know when those weaknesses are going to pop up. And that's why we need Jesus. We're lost without him. Here's the second thing. How do you think Peter felt when the very second he denies Jesus that third time, he hears, <laughs> how do you think he felt? That must have been devastating. We know, again, looking ahead, we know it was devastating to him. It was devastating. It would devastate any of us. You know, guilt is going to drive us to generally one of two responses. We can never get rid of guilt. I know we'd like to. The feeling of guilt. But what we do with it is important, and it's going to drive us to one of two responses. There's the Judas response, which is despair. The Judas response is self-flagellation, abuse of comforting substances, withdrawal from community and loved ones. That one drives me a little bit crazy as a pastor. The number of people who really like church when everything is going fine in their life and then something goes wrong, which they caused, and they think the best thing they should do is to withdraw from the very community that wants to surround them with the grace and love and restoration that Jesus has. And then there's also despair leads us to bad decision making. Then there's the Peter response, which we're going to see later. The Peter response is repentance, it's confession, it's restoration, it's resiliency. How many of you would like to be considered resilient? We find that in the gospel. There's perseverance and there's faithfulness. You see, Jesus is all about Peter's response. In fact, he's the one that makes Peter's response possible in the first place. So as we close, I, I want us to just think about a few things here. Number one, denying Jesus is easy. Denying Jesus is easy. It's the culturally approved thing to do. If you deny Jesus, you will have great affirmation from so many in the world. You'll be very popular on, on social media. If you're looking for lots of likes and followers, put out a statement denying Jesus. That'll get you all kinds of affirmation. But following Jesus is hard. It's going to cost you. But it's also where you will find restoration, resiliency, perseverance, and faithfulness. Here's the second thing. 
Living in denial is also easy. It's why so many of us do it, and we're so good at it. But confession and repentance and reality are hard. But that's also where wisdom and truth reside. Here's the third thing. Self-protection is also easy. By the way, I'm speaking from personal experience on all of this. This is autobiographical. I'm preaching to myself. You're just listening, okay? Self-protection is also easy. Sacrifice is hard. How many of us will give up marketplace integrity for self-protection? And yet, sacrifice is what lives and what gives life. And then finally, number four, Caiaphas, expedience is easy. But seeking truth is hard because truth confronts, calls, and conforms. Truth is essential to transformation and sanctification. Peter is us. There's a little bit of, actually, there's a lot of Peter in all of us. And I'm not, I'm not denying that what the Christian faith asks for is difficult. It is. But it's also where life is. It's where wisdom is. It's where truth, power, and strength and honor are. It's the old saying, salvation is free, but it isn't cheap. Look at it this way. Peter wants to be close enough to the action to see it, and he wants to be close enough to the fire to get warmed by the fire, but he doesn't want to be close enough to the action or close enough to the fire that it costs him anything or that he gets burned. And that's a picture of many people today. They want to be close enough to Jesus for all the benefits, but they don't want to be so close that it costs them anything. And here's what faith in Christ does give us. Here's what the gospel has in store for us. And I would argue that the cost is worth it. Jesus will never deny us if we embrace him. Jesus is willing to confess that which gets him unjustly executed. He will die for what is right. And what he sees as right is saving his people, those who would come to him in repentance and faith. And Jesus submits himself for us to the greatest, most horrific sacrifice in history, the cross. We're going to learn a little bit about that in a few weeks. The writer of Hebrews says it like this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Father, I pray that we would see what Jesus is doing here and we would understand that he's doing the work that we can't do for our salvation. And that should call. That should call us. It should beckon us. I pray the Holy Spirit would fill every person in this room right now and that the Spirit would either start turning hearts or continue to sanctify and transform hearts in this room. God, we thank you for your word and its truth. I pray that you would give redemption Arcadia and all of redemption, the courage, the power, the discipleship to be able to live out a life that, as Paul says, is worthy of our call in the gospel. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going to uh, have our time of response now. We're going to do, uh, I was told by the drummer, 1.5 songs. That's like a song and a half. As we uh, come to the Lord's table, if our servers would come forward. Again, we're still using... Uh, the kits, and for the foreseeable future, we probably will uh, for a while. We're anxious to get back to the, to the other elements, but for the foreseeable future, still with the kits, so you'll come forward and get a kit. You'll take the kit back to your table, open it up, take the wafer, that's the bread, the body of Christ, and then turn it over and open up the other side, that's the cup, the, 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 the new covenant. Jesus says it's the cup of his blood that was shed for our sins. And he did this with his disciples, his best friends, 
on this very night that he was betrayed. He broke the bread and he said, this is for you. My body's going to the cross. It's going to reconcile you to the Father in a way that has never happened before. And that blood will forgive your sins. He says, do all of this in remembrance of me. So when we step into the aisle, it's a confession that we know Jesus, but it's also a celebration that Jesus has done the work for us and we receive his grace, love, and mercy in his salvation. So let's do that now. We also have Ann and Steve are standing over here. If you have prayers, prayer requests, or questions, or whatever, Patrick is over here, same thing. Deacons and elders here to answer your questions, pray with you, be with you at, uh, during the rest of this service. Let's do that now.
Amen. Thank you for joining us for worship today. Fantastic time of worship. Wonderful message. Uh, we want to invite you to participate with us on the patio in baptism. And so we'd love for you to join us for that as well. Our benediction today is from 1 John chapter 2, out of verse uh, 28. It says, Therefore, dear children, abide in Christ, that we may have confidence in him, and that we may not shrink back from him at his coming. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus. Amen. <laughs>